to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the American Bar Association's Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Podcast. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, and I am very excited to have with me one of my colleagues at Beckage, Mariah Jaworski. Mariah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year to you as well. Um, so I, if you could start for our audience, just introducing who you are, what it is that you're doing in the security and privacy space. Obviously, I know you very well, but I want everyone else to get you to know you as well. That's right, sure. So Mariah Jaworski and I lead the Privacy Litigation Practice Group at Beckage. And Beckage is a law firm that's focused exclusively on data security and privacy with offices in New York, California, and Pennsylvania. And I really handle um, the firm's defensive data breach litigation, um, technology dispute litigation, and also data misuse litigation. So that's some of the privacy litigation um, where we're defending large-scale class actions that arise under state consumer laws. And I'm really excited to delve into sort of what's going on in that litigation space, because I think in 2021, we're going to see those things evolve and we're definitely seeing a lot of movement. But before we get into that, you know, I'm curious, you know, what was your journey to privacy, technology and security law? You know, everyone seems to have these really unique paths to this area of law. So I'm just curious what brought you to this area and sort of how you got here. You know, Jordan, I've been really fortunate in that my career has tracked the emergence and development of data protection laws in the EU and the United States. And, and as you mentioned, like a lot of attorneys, I didn't I didn't start here. Mm -hmm. um, I actually began my career with the honors program at the United States Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, the honors program is the entry level um, attorney recruitment program at the Department of Justice. I was fortunate enough to be selected um, into the honors program, and I was in the Environment and Natural Resources Division there. So I represented the United States in affirmative enforcement actions um, under the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and laws pertaining to the cleanup of hazardous waste sites. So I, you know, the DOJ is a really great place to start a litigation career. Uh, there's nothing more sobering and heady than you know being 25 years old and getting to stand up in federal court and saying, I represent the United States of America. It's really just, it was a terrific privilege. But um, after Department of Justice, I then ended up joining the litigation team of a mid-sized regional law firm where I continued to litigate, but I, I started to get involved in founding the firm's crisis response team. And the thinking at that time was that we would see a lot of environmental and occupational crises. So chemical spills and explosions and fires but in fact, we started to see a lot of incidents. So whether those were kind of the employee oops actions, you know, as we call them, where an employee falls for a phishing scam or misdirects a wire transfer to a third party or, you know, something more malicious that was caused by an outside actor, a more traditional hack or breach of network security. Um, so the, the crisis response team pretty quickly became effectively the data breach team. And this was also at the time when there was just a ton of regulatory activity in the cybersecurity and data protection space. 
Um, all states in the United States were in the process of promulgating their own data breach laws, um, requiring reporting and notification um, in, in certain instances. And in New York State, where I was located, um, the Department of Financial Services had just instituted uh, the first cybersecurity regulations for banks and insurance agencies. And of course, um, across the pond in Europe, there were data protection directives that were in play and relevant to our clients. And, and obviously, um, you know, then we had the promulgation of the GDPR. Mm -hmm. So I kind of came, um, I, I kind of grew up in data protection law, if you will. There was really this shift in thinking about data um, and an opportunity at the time for attorneys who had an interest in technology to really focus on these emerging legal issues around data use and, and misuse and protection. So we were very well positioned in this space. And um, this led my colleague Jennifer Beckage to really recognize an opportunity and a demand for attorneys who were specialized in data security and privacy um, and, and to start her own specialized law firm. Um, and recruit, you know, specialized kind of attorneys to the space. So I give Jennifer a lot of credit because the last few year, years have really just seen enormous growth and demand for DSP services at Beckage. And it's really, you know, I think it's so interesting, your journey, because it really does track the way that the the market and sort of the, the legal sphere has evolved. Because, you know, I like to remind my students, when I went to law school, we didn't have a data privacy or cybersecurity class. And now, you know, it's becoming a much more well accepted area of the practice of law. Um, but I love that your journey sort of evolved in this direction, which we find a lot of people doing. Um, and I also love the fact that you have these two perspectives, having worked for the DOJ, you can sort of understand that internal, that government, that regulatory perspective and bring that to, you know, aiding private sector clients to better prepare in that space, um, which I think we're only going to see an increase of that sort of regulatory perspective into cyber and privacy. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I always say to my clients, you know, I'm still able to wear that regulator's hat and, mm -hmm. and have the perspective of a regulator and really understand the mission and principles and directives of the government in this space. Um, so that's something that I take with me throughout my career. And I agree. I mean, we didn't have data protection classes in law school. It just wasn't top of mind. It was really kind of in those early uh, seed stage of data protection law in the United States. So we've been really fortunate to grow um, with the law. A hundred percent. So I am, you know, I want to turn the conversation to sort of the general trends that we're seeing in privacy and, and security litigation. Um, and I think, you know, in the United States, we definitely have um, more of an understanding, at least from my perspective, of the concept of cyber litigation and sort of cyber breach litigation. But this concept of privacy litigation is somewhat new or on the on the newer side. But from your perspective, what are the trends? I'm going to ask very broadly, and then I, and we're going to delve into some details. But what are the trends that we can expect coming out of 2020 and into 2021 in that litigation space? Yeah, so I think you're right, right? There's the data breach litigation. That's kind of the more traditional litigation we've seen over the last decade that really kind of concerns multi-district litigations brought by hundreds or thousands or millions of plaintiffs um, against a business who experienced a data breach. And, and there the allegation really is, you had my data in the first place and that was okay, but you didn't protect my data. You didn't use the reasonable security measures 
to safeguard my data. And because of that, a third party was able to access it and I've been harmed. So that's kind of the data breach litigation that you referred to. Whereas the privacy litigation that's really emerging in the last few years is, is what I consider to be the data misuse litigation. This is where a person or class of people come together and claim that there's something that's fundamentally kind of wrong or misleading about the way that a business collects the data from a consumer or uses their data in the first, you know, in, in, in the first instance, that the business didn't disclose that it had collected the data, they didn't disclose how they shared the data, or they didn't obtain consent if consent's required under state or some federal laws. Um, so we've seen this prominently in some of the larger class actions against big tech, um, such as the consumer privacy litigation involving Facebook, you know, in which our firm is involved on behalf of uh, defendant Dr. Kogan, the data scientist who helped to develop the app at issue um, in that litigation. But data misuse litigation is significantly on the rise and, and not just against big tech. We're seeing these types of class actions and lawsuits being brought against small and medium sized businesses as well who are subjected to these types of claims. So an important point here is that data misuse litigation is really a large umbrella under which a lot of different types of claims are brought. So in a data misuse case, the driving claim may be a statutory claim if there's like a state consumer fraud law or, you know, in instances of California, if there's a state privacy law on point. But the complaint will also have privacy torts like invasion of privacy, They'll have torts like negligence. And we even see breach of contract claims, the contract there being the business's privacy policy in terms of use. So these are really kind of a smorgasbord of claims that I think fall under this larger umbrella of data misuse. And a lot of the ones you just highlighted to me speak to sort of private party litigation, but data misuse also brings a lot of FTC potential exposure as well. Isn't that correct? So you could be facing litigation in the private sector, but then also a regulatory sort of investigatory matter as well. Is that correct? That's, that's exactly right. And I think where we've seen the FTC be most active has been in the context of um, enforcing privacy promises. So the FTC's authority is somewhat limited. It's not really the United States privacy regulator, right? It has a more narrow authority, but where it is able to act is in instances where businesses um, are essentially are, are, are alleged to have lied, right? The FTC seems to have this ethos of just don't lie, put it in a privacy policy, Make sure your privacy policy is accurate. And if it's not, and if you're, you know, failing to disclose something material, material, or if you're uh, essentially lying or have something inaccurate in your privacy policy, then that's when the FTC uh, really does get involved to enforce um, and bring certain actions against businesses. And I find, especially when you're looking from the lens of the GDPR, everyone is really focused on sort of these regulatory actions. You know, the GDPR, the 4% of global revenue or 20 million euros, whichever is higher. I think it was like one of the top news headlines coming out of 2018 when the GDPR went into effect. But a lot of people don't understand there's 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 litigation on both sides. And so we I wanted to make sure that people understood you could have the regulatory investigations going on. You could also have private litigation, breach of contract, torts, et cetera. So being as prepared as possible to address all those different facets is really key for an organization heading into 2021. 
Absolutely. And I would say another area that we've seen really only on uh, increasing in terms of uh, the incidence of this type of litigation is technology disputes. The majority of breaches now are really breaches by third party vendors or of third party vendor environments that then impact businesses and require businesses to make certain reporting and notification obligations. So in the context of a B2B dispute, we're seeing a lot of technology disputes and, and litigations um, between businesses concerning a, a vendor's failure to perform under um, you know, a contract. Yeah, and I, I like to remind, you know, so many people will say, I don't have to comply with GDPR or CCPA or these other regulations, and I'll remind them, if you signed an agreement that that was going to be your baseline privacy or security, guess what? You've just set your standard of privacy and security in your contract. So it's a Agreed. really important part point to, to remember that there's multiple facets of um, litigation liability that, that companies have to be aware of. Um, so I want to just sort of delve into some areas that I think are trending up in the litigation context, some specific sort of categories of litigation for companies to be aware of. And I know that you've done a lot of work in the TCPA context. So I didn't know if you could sort of give listeners an understanding of what they should be aware of under the TCPA um, and where you sort of see that trending in 2021. Sure. So 2020 was a big year for the TCPA, the TCPA being the Telephone Consumer um, Protection Act. It's essentially a statute that in theory is aimed at preventing or prohibiting um, pernicious robocalls. So those are the telemarketing phone calls that we're all subject to. But in fact, the TCPA over you know the course of its life has really not seen a decrease in um, in in those types of calls. And, and what we've seen instead is really just an increase in TCPA litigation and class action litigation because of the private right of action and because of some of the provisions that allow for the award of attorney's fees. So in, in order to contact a consumer via text message or via phone for certain marketing purposes, a business has to have some level of um, consent that it's obtained. That can be prior written consent, prior written express consent. It really depends on the circumstance. Um, and what we're seeing is a lot of class action lawsuits filed in certain jurisdictions um, that really allege that a consumer received two text messages um, without the requisite level of consent. And then they attempt to certify a class and these awards become deeply punitive. And the businesses that are subjected to TCPA lawsuits really run the gamut. They are in every industry and of every size throughout the United States. So we've seen just this con continued rise in TCPA litigation that's not going to necessarily stop in 2021, but there's two really important things that um, have happened in the last year that, that could um, certainly impact the scope of TCPA litigation in the future. The first is that over the summer, the Supreme Court issued a decision in what's called the Barr versus APPC um, case. And essentially there, the Supreme Court looked at the TCPA's uh, government debt collection provision. So the TCPA was amended in 2005, and it said all phone calls and all you know text messages are prohibited unless there's consent in place, except for those phone calls and text messages that are on behalf of government debt collectors, right? So it carved out a type of speech, and it protected that type of speech, or it uh, preferred that type of speech to other types of speech. So the Supreme Court over the summer said that was wrongful, that was unconstitutional, and it struck that provision of the TCPA. 
Now, since that decision, district courts throughout the United States have struggled with whether that decision means that the TCPA um, during the time that the debt collection provision was in, in place was actually unconstitutional. Um, and whether that means that the law cannot be applied between 2005 and, and 2020. And we've seen an even split. Uh, about six district courts to date have had the, the opportunity to evaluate this question of essentially whether um, the Supreme Court's severance of this unconstitutional provision saved the TCPA prospectively or also saved it retroactively. Three have said, three district courts have said that the TCPA cannot be applied to lawsuits between 2005 and 2020. And three district courts um, have said it absolutely can be applied. The severance was just of that small provision. It doesn't apply to the statute on whole, et cetera. So this is a really um, difficult area of TCPA application that you know really could be a knockout punch to some of these class actions. We've raised this issue ourselves and in, in our firm has in pending um, TCPA litigation. So we're keeping a very close eye on, on that trend in TCPA litigation. And then secondarily in the TCPA, we have the big Facebook petition to the Supreme Court. This was heard in December of 2020. And this concerns you know, the big ticket item of the TCPA, which is what is an automated telephone dialing system, an ATDS? So the TCPA only prohibits calls and text messages um, that are made with an ATDS, but the term ATDS is not defined in the statute and has actually been defined differently by circuit courts throughout the United States. So um, the, the Supreme Court in December took up this split in, in circuits. Uh, on the issue of what an ATDS is. And there's an expectation that they're going to interpret an ATDS very narrowly, um, which would be a, a, a very helpful case or a helpful decision for businesses to have. I actually had the opportunity to listen to the oral argument there, and it was very interesting because a lot of the justices were struggling with, you know, whether the TCPA, A, even applies to text messages, um, in, in the first instance, the TCPA itself doesn't um, include text messages in its statutory terms. That's the result of an FCC interpretation. And I think that there's some justices that are um, sort of looking askew at, at agency deference and, and would like an opportunity to narrow the Chevron doctrine. But in addition to that, we also had some of the justices ask questions about whether the TCPA is just an obsolete law whether it's a law that is not kept up with technology and you know maybe we need to start from scratch. I'm not familiar with any precedent that allows you know, the Supreme Court or any court to um, uh, knock down a statute on the basis of it being obsolete, but certainly a lot of the questioning uh, during that hearing uh, concerned really how the TCPA is somewhat ineffective in accomplishing its, its statutory goals. You know, I think that's really the TCPA area really highlights how challenging it is for regulation to keep up with what is a extremely fast moving technological environment. And we're just seeing these tensions between laws that were created before technology or created in the early stage of technology that really just don't address um, where technology is going. And I think we're going to see that tension 
even more so in 2021 and going forward because we need to have some regulatory guidance. And we often see this, the Supreme Court or other organizations by way of their questioning, really trying to signal to Congress, we need you to step in. And I, and I wonder if we're going to see some more action, maybe not in 2021, but heading into sort of the next five years. And I know that's something that we can discuss. I think congressional action in the privacy sphere is so needed right now because businesses, not just technologies that are sort of at the, um, you know, subject to these laws that are really outdated, but it's also businesses that are subjected to this patchwork of privacy laws throughout the United States having certain obligations in one state and not those obligations in another state and how difficult that can be to roll out, you know, a product across the country or to open an office in different jurisdictions in the United States. So I think congressional action is absolutely required. I'm just not particularly optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone always asks the question, when are we going to get a, a national privacy law? And I go, if I had a magic eight ball that told me, trust me, I would share it with everyone. So. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Um, but it is really challenging when, you know, you have these products that don't see borders, but laws that do, and you have data flowing across those borders. And I think it's going to be, you know, an outstanding question for a while as to how regulation is going to step in to sort of address that. But I did, you know, talking about these patchwork um, laws and everything, I wanted to make sure we had an opportunity to discuss um, the elephant in the U.S. room, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act and the anticipation that now that it's been in effect for, you know, over a year, it was last year around this time that it went into effect. It's been now technically um, enforced for about six months. Where, from your perspective, you see litigation going under the California Consumer Privacy Act. And now we have the CPRA that obviously was a ballot initiative that was adopted in November. So I wanted to get your thoughts on the CCPA and litigation. Sure. So I think that 2021 will be hopefully a year of some resolution on the big questions of um, CCPA litigation. The, the the primary question being, what does this private right of action really mean? How broad is this private right of action in the CCPA? And, and what does it actually cover? You know, Jordan, I, I'm certainly a defensive attorney. I tend to represent businesses and, and not consumers in these types of cases. But when I read the CCPA's private right of action, to me, it very clearly is intended to provide a way for consumers to bring actions that result from data breaches, non-cure data breaches of certain sensitive personal information, right? That's how that private right of action is written. But plaintiff's attorneys and plaintiffs have brought a handful of class action law, excuse me, lawsuits where they're essentially alleging that the CPA, CCPA's private right of action is much broader, that it can actually be used to um, against a business that has violated some other provision of the CCPA. So I think the, the number one case that I'm really keeping an eye on in the CCPA realm is the retail equation, equation litigation. So this is a litigation where um, against a lot of online retailers like Bed Bath & Beyond, et cetera. And these online retailers um, were sued in a, in a massive class action for voluntarily sharing consumer data with this business called Retail Equation. And Retail Equation, essentially what they do is they're a third-party service provider. They have some program whereby they're able to assist these businesses in um, fraudulent return detection. So the businesses share consumer PI with Retail Equation and, equa and Retail Equation is able to in indicate 
with some, I think they assess some kind of risk score, score, excuse me, associated with a transaction that this transaction appears to be a fraudulent return. Very kind of fundamental business purpose, um, seems very legitimate. Well, the, the plaintiffs here are saying, you didn't disclose to us that you were sharing our information in this way, um, and therefore you violated the CCPA's disclosure requirements. But the real question, of course, is whether the private right of action as written is designed to provide a basis for that type of claim. Um, that's not a data breach. That's not unauthorized access by a third party. And that's probably not even the sensitive categories of personal information. That's a business voluntarily sharing consumer information with a third party service provider for purposes of fraud detection. And I think that, um, you know, if the CCPA is found by a court to contemplate that type of um, scenario, then we're going to just see the floodgates open and um, tons of filings of CCPA lawsuits. And I think this private right of action tends to be one of the largest tension points for a lot of privacy laws. You know, whether or not they're going to allow um, individuals, individual companies, et cetera, to file lawsuits under these privacy laws. We saw this be a big point of contention in Washington state. We see it as part of the federal conversations. And I think a lot of people are looking to California to sort of see how they're going to handle it um, and how they, um, and, and where it's going to go from there. But I agree with you, it could open up some floodgates that could be detrimental um, in the long run to a lot of businesses. Agreed. And another case that I'm keeping a close eye on in 2021 under the CCPA is the minted CCPA class action. Um, minted being the large online retailer of, you know, photo related decor and gifts. Um, they were sued as the result of a data breach. So that's really a more traditional use of the private right of action there. However, Minted has indicated to the court that it's going to file a motion to compel class-wide arbitration. So class-wide arbitration is something that in recent years, the Supreme Court has said, you know, really needs to be um, on the basis of some disclaimer in a privacy policy or disclaimer in a contract not just um, that the individual has agreed to individual arbitration, but that they've also agreed to arbitrate class claims on a class-wide basis. So Minted has indicated that it's going to bring a motion to compel class-wide arbitration. And if it's effective in doing so, I think we'll see a lot of businesses take um, another look at their privacy policies and their um, end user license agreements and make sure that the appropriate kind of class action arbitration language is in place. And it's always really important, especially now with the CCPA requiring it, um, but just generally to be at least annually looking at those documents, making sure you're aware of trends, things that have changed, because we're getting a lot of guidance, FTC, different states, regulatory guidance, and those documents, you know, I can't tell you how many times I go onto a website and the privacy policy was updated in 2010. And I think to myself, ooh, that is not the signal you want to be giving to everybody. <laughs> oh, agreed, agreed. I mean, this this really goes to the heart of how can you as a business protect yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least put yourself in a defensive legal position vis-a-vis -vis some of these consumer claims. And I really think that your external policies and your terms of use and user license agreements and privacy policies are certainly the first step um, in, in that process. Yes. And I think that's a positive note to end on a little bit. You know, you know, how can you actually prevent all this from happening? Um, so I want to ask, too, you know, we talked a lot about your predictions going forward, a lot about where the, the current environment is. But sitting where you are very heavily involved in privacy and cyber litigation, 
both on the national and international level. What is sort of your one prediction that you would have for the future of especially privacy litigation heading into 2021 and beyond? You know, Jordan, for 2021, I think we're going to see the continued rise of biometric litigation. Now, the majority of this litigation currently takes place in Illinois under that state's Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA. Um, and BIPA, for, for the audience, is a statute that really requires businesses to make certain disclosures and obtain written releases before collecting biometric information or identifiers from consumers. And BIPA has really steep statutory penalties for the failure to do so, and it also has a private right of action. So we've seen hundreds of class actions filed in 2020 under BIPA, and I think we're just going to see the continued rise of biometric litigation. Um, there's a lot of BIPA-related legal issues that I think will, will be resolved in 2021. And the first is the question of federal preemption. So a lot of these BIPA class actions are filed by employees against employers, and they relate to issues of um, employers' use of biometric timekeeping tools. And the employers are rightfully taking the position that, you know, this kind of intrudes onto the workplace and that BIPA is therefore preempted by federal labor laws or state work or worker compensation laws, et cetera. So in 2020, we're, 2021, excuse me, we're really going to wait to see what the courts have to say about that. Um, another big BIPA issue is vendor liability. This is still undecided under BIPA, and there's um, court decisions going in both directions. So, so this is the liability of the vendors who provide these platforms to businesses that collect, process, or you know potentially even store biometric information. Um, and in some instances, these third-party vendors, not even located in the state of Illinois, have found themselves as defendants in BIPA lawsuits. Um, but the really interesting biometric case um, and cases really concern the use of facial recognition or the collection of publicly available images for the use in some AI tool. So this is like the Clearview AI and IBM diversity and faces cases. These businesses have tools that basically scrape the internet for publicly available images, and they use those images as refer reference libraries to train their AI, you know, and in the case of Clearview, um, they're training the AI for law enforcement purposes. Um, so IBM ended up abandoning its diversity and faces initiative, but Clearview AI is currently in court um, arguing in, in a BIPA litigation that it has a First Amendment speech protection for some of its internet scraping um, activities um, in connection with its facial recognition software. So these are very interesting cases that we're definitely going to continue to watch in 2021. Um, and even outside of Illinois, we see multiple state proposals to regulate the collection and use of biometric information, New York, Washington, Texas, um, and what's really interesting is that even at the local town ordinance level, we're seeing towns prohibit the use of facial recognition technology in downtown areas. Um, Portland, Oregon comes to mind there. So in 2021, any business that is collecting biometric information or considering collecting biometric information um, or identifiers should really be performing privacy risk impact assessments before doing so. And they should you know, really work to evaluate the relevant laws and risks associated with um, biometric regulation and, and biometric litigation in particular. It is so key to highlight that area. The sensitivity of that data is 
really in a lot of ways, some of our most sensitive information. Um, I often like to say you might be able to change your password, but changing your face is going to be much harder to do um, in the long run. So I think that's, I, I totally agree with your predictions um, that uh, biometrics is really just going to play an increasingly impactful role um, as we head into 2021. I think that's absolutely correct. And you know, the sensitive the sensitivity of biometric information, as you mentioned, Jordan, I think that was really on display with the big Facebook BIPA settlement um, of 2020. What happened there was Facebook settled a big BIPA lawsuit um, concerning its photo tagging features for $550 million. But the court ended up rejecting that settlement in part because the court took so seriously the allegations of misuse of biometric information. And not only was Facebook required to pay $100 million more, but the face but the court also required Facebook to put proactive remedial practices in place to comply with BIPA. So this is the one area that I think courts in particular um, really see the sensitivity of biometric information as um, uh, requiring additional protections. Yeah, it's not as much up for debate as some other areas of privacy and, 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 and data, so. That's right. Um, well, thank you so much. And thanks everyone for joining in today. Stay tuned for future episodes on security and privacy topics from the American Bar Association. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.